and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love of David. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. John 6, 27-35 Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. We continue our study of 1 Peter, who takes up these themes of hungering and thirsting for what is lasting and true. Now, we looked earlier, uh, we linked the final verses in chapter 1 to some of the earlier verses that we studied. But as we focus this morning on the first three verses in chapter 2, I do want to go back and start reading with verse 22 of chapter 1 because this sets the context. Uh, some of you asked me this week about uh, something I said last week about the indicative and the imperative uh, that I think that's putting it in grammatical terms. Uh, but the idea often is that law comes, uh, that law comes first and then comes grace. Uh, both among those who uh, have a, a works righteousness view and those who have a radical grace view. And I contended that unlike religion, man-made religion, which always starts with the imperative, do this, do this. And if you do this, then the indicative will follow, then God will love you. That's not how it works. In, in what God has done for us, the good news of the gospel is that grace always proceeds. The grace of creation, God making us in his image, preceded everything. And then God put us down in a good place with all that we needed. And so grace always comes before the commandment. The commandment comes as a picture of how we should then live. I even 
I think last week that I mentioned the Ten Commandments. People tend to think, well, we get the law, but then we don't keep the commandments. Then we get the temple and the sacrifice and grace. But if it had begun with law, then the Lord would have sent Moses down into Egypt to the people in bondage when they cried out and said, these are my commands, do them, and I'll set you free. That's not what happened. God heard their cry. He delivered them. And then he said, as a result of what I've done for you, this is what it looks like to live in covenant with me. And that covenant is a covenant of love. What does it mean to love the Lord and to love my neighbor? Well, the Ten Commandments are a summary of what that looks like. They're a picture gallery. So the Ten Commandments begin with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, therefore, you have known my grace. Now, this is how you're to live. And this is so important for us to understand because uh, I was reflecting uh, earlier this week on one of my friends whose name I will not name, uh, who is an esteemed minister, a, just a brilliant pastoral theologian, great preacher. And I remember years ago when we were young pastors, he called me and said, oh, I've got to tell you something as a warning. He said, there's a guy I've been praying for and really just longing to see him come to Christ. He's been coming to church, finally asked to see me. So he came to my study and asked me, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he said, I talked for about a half hour and when I finished, he said, I had no idea it was so complicated. <laughs> and he said, I, I had to say, you know what? We're just gonna pray again. We're gonna start all over again. I made this a whole lot more complicated than it actually is. At the heart of the Bible is one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. As Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, on these hang or depend all of the law and prophets. And law and prophets was the word for the Bible. He's saying everything, everything in the scripture hangs on this. Love the Lord, love one another. Because we don't do that well, Christ came and bore our brokenness, our failures to love, and gives us his righteousness, his perfect love, but gives us his spirit so that we might now begin to live this way. So all of that as backdrop again to hearing these verses, beginning with verse 22 of chapter one, and one final word, sorry. Remember always in studying the scriptures that the verses and chapter divisions were put in there during the Middle Ages when they were doing it to the works of Aristotle and Plato and all ancient documents. They're not in the original. So often these divisions, while they make it easier to find things, make it harder to understand. First okay. Peter 1, beginning with verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. So Peter has given us the indicative. He began the letter with it. He said, praise be to our God and Father who had, through him we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, ready to be revealed at the last time. So there's what God has done for us. And then he begins his therefores. Therefore, this is how you should live. And again, he goes back in those final verses of chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And he again summarizes what God has done for us. He says that we have been born again. We've been born into this whole new way of living by God who has given us his spirit through his word, new life coming to us through the, what he calls the living and abiding word of God. But here's the problem. If we're honest, hopefully not all the time, but more times than we would like, we wake up and say, if I've been born anew to a living hope, through the living and abiding word of God, I mean, why am I still such a mess? Why am I still such a disaster? Why am I not looking more like Jesus? I, I remember when I was pastoring Cedar Springs and a friend said, wow, you know, look at, look at what the Lord has done putting you in this place. And I said, yeah, but I thought by now I wouldn't still be such a complete and utter, I won't use the word I used with him, there are children <laughs> present, but I said, uh, mess. That's a good innocuous way to put it. Um, maybe you're not like that. If so, uh, just spend this time talking to the same deep things to the Lord. But um, if you're at all like me, perhaps you need over and again to go back to basic refresher concepts of how God wants by his spirit through his word to grow us up. And we're called to three moves in these first three verses of chapter two. And it has to do with what we permit our affections, our hearts, our tastes to go out to. What we are willing to embrace and what we refuse to embrace. And so I want first to think about what we should refuse to embrace. And he, these aren't exhaustive at all. He's giving us an idea. Our tendency is to focus on behaviors, just behaviors, and think that as long as our behavior is acceptable, it's okay 
at least sometimes to sit back and think for a few minutes what we'd like to say to this one or do to that one or, um, you know, if I ruled the world, what I'd do with those people. Uh, and we think that's okay. The problem is that whatever we allow our hearts to continue desiring eventually comes out. It comes out in if it's destructive desires or thoughts or fantasies, it will come out in destructive words and destructive behaviors. And so what Peter is doing here is just getting us to look at our hearts. In fact, if you think about the Ten Commandments, there really aren't Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew, they're just called the Ten Words. But the final word is, that, which is, don't covet, it bleeds back into the other nine to remind us that it's all a matter of the heart. You can't look at God's law and say, as long as I try externally to do these things, I'm okay. No, the 10th commandment says, this is a matter of your heart. It's your desires. It's what you want. So guard your heart, for out of it are the springs of life. So how does he put it in verse 1? Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now all but slander are matters of the heart. He says all malice. What is malice? It's when I sit back and think what I'd like to do to that person who in the news said this or who said this to me or who cut me off out there when I was pulling into church. No, none of you. But I mean, you know, you think, oh, that instinct, I won't be treated that way. I won't be talked to that way. I won't allow people to make those gestures at me and get away with it. I mean, you know, if I, if I just, you know, maybe I could just bump his car, you know, crazy stuff. Um, but it's that inner plane again, if only I'd said this, if only I'd said that. Do you know that, um, that wonderful poem, uh, what's, what's his name, who wrote it? The Prince of American Poets, he was called, wrote seven stanzas at Easter. John Updike. Updike wrote thoughts while driving home. See if I can remember it. Because this is a picture, it's funny, but it's a picture of of how we should not let our minds go. He said, was I clever enough? Was I charming? Did I make at least one good pun? Was I disconcerting, disarming? Was I wise? Was I wan? Was I fun? Did I answer that girl with white shoulders correctly? Or should I have said, Kierkegaard smolders, but Eliot's ashes are dead? And did I, while being a smarty, yet some shy reserve Riley keep so they said after I'd left the party he's deep he's deep he's deep now I don't know about you but I have often driven home even from church parties with that kind of silliness and nonsense I should have said that I, I might have answered that in this way 
And basically, he's telling us these things that we just let play with our minds as we reinvent scenes and use our imaginations, not as God intended them to be used, which was for meditation on his word and his truth. But we use it instead to imagine getting back or getting even or getting better. And it's not about God's glory and it's not about loving others. It's not even about loving myself wisely or well. It's just wasted on malice and reliving. And he says, don't do it. Deceit, we all know what that is. Hypocrisy. Okay, there's something endearing to me about hypocrisy because it just means that we all wish we were better than we are. But it gets bad when we intentionally hide from one another. And that's why sometimes I, I just try to get real up here, not because I enjoy exposing myself, but because it's important that we realize that this word is for every one of us. Every one of us is broken. And we never get there. We never arrive. I hear people present the gospel and preach the word in a way that would make you think that they just come off the mountain. And the reality is that we continue to struggle with malice and with envy and greed and lust and hypocrisy. And what are we to do when we encounter those? He tells us, put it away, refuse to embrace it. Take it to the Lord and get on your face and say, Lord, my heart is still full of this stuff and I don't want it to be. And through your spirit, working through your word, you have told me that I can be done with this. In the home where we lived for about 35 years in Knoxville, we were surrounded by these magnificent oaks. And I loved them in all seasons of the year. But even the oaks can turn a beautiful, rusty uh, gold in the, as, as winter comes. And I loved that, but what I hated was when they all fell down because it was a disaster. And it took forever. So I'd think I was done and more would come. But there were always some that I would see all winter. And you'd see this leaf that looked as though it was just held by the slightest tendril. And the wind would be blowing and it would be, you know, snowing. And I'd think, it's got to come down. It can't stand that. And yet all winter long, there would be a few of these tenaciously holding fast. You know what got rid of them? Spring. The sap began to rise. And the new life threw them on. Our struggles are a mark to us of the degree to which the new life is continuing to rise up within us. And that's why probably for most of us, we have seasons that are so sweet, walking in intimacy and, and joy and power and seeing God at work in us. And if you're like me, you think, I'll never go back there. I'm done with that. But then one day you awaken and you realize that there are still some leaves uh, hanging on and blowing where you thought that they were down. 
And how does that new life come? He tells us in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What is the pure spiritual milk? Well, in other places, the word is called the, the milk of the word. But I think that here he's talking about all of the good things that he's been telling us. It is God's word that God's spirit takes. And he wants us to be longing for that. But it's also the reality of the things that he's been teaching us that we begin to learn, especially in times when other stuff comes up, to turn intentionally away from what is brokenness and turn toward him. Am I desiring something that's ungodly? Then I turn now and say, Father, I want now concrete, positive things that you have promised that I will long for. Would you begin to do this in me? It's what the great uh, Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers called in one of his great sermons, the expulsive power of a new affection. That's how God does it. The old affections are driven out by the expulsive power of new affections. So how do we get those affections? He tells us in verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Why would we want a lesser good when what he offers us is the greatest good of all? Why would we want to know and continue to hold to parts of life that we know bring brokenness and grief in the end and are passing away? Stolen water is sweet only for a little while. The things that seem so charming at night don't seem that way in the light of morning. Some of us had to learn that over and over and over and over again to awaken and say, why did I do that? What am I doing here? Why do I keep falling for a lie? But by three in the afternoon, it all begins to look pretty attractive again unless you are replacing, you are putting off the brokenness and intentionally embracing this call to the sincere milk, this good thing that will cause you to grow up into salvation. So what is it and how do we do it? I'd suggest three ways. First of all, have you tasted the goodness of God's forgiveness? I want to ask you something. Do you have things in your life that you are still so ashamed of and you fear being found out? You think if these things were known, I would not be loved anymore. I would not be respected. I would lose my place. I would lose my identity if I were truly known. That's the kind of hypocrisy he's talking about. If so, have you not yet known the forgiveness of the Lord? The Lord has said, if you bring these things to me, if you confess these things and repent of them, and repentance involves a change of mind, it's not just constantly coming, same thing, it's saying, 
No, by your power now, I want to turn. I want to go in a different direction. We're not going to get it perfectly, but man, can there be a new trajectory in our lives. And can we ever develop new tastes to where once, what once tasted so good and was so attractive, no longer attracts us because we know where it leads. We know what it does. So have you tasted the forgiveness of the Lord? He has promised that if we take our brokenness to him and ask him to forgive us, he will put it as far away as the east is from the west and remember it no more. That's God's promise to you. And if he has forgiven it and he has put it away and he has promised to remember it no more, then for you to keep dredging it up is just a denial of his, his promise to you to put it away forever. John Stott used to say that the problem a lot of us have is that we've got too low a view of God's grace and too high a view of our sin. And we think that somehow this thing that I've done or who I am is just too big and unmanageable a problem for the Lord. So have you yet tasted the sweetness of knowing that the record is clear that you have been forgiven and that God won't bring it up again and you don't need to keep bringing it up either. Move on. You are now the person that he has declared you to be by grace. Secondly, have you tasted the joy of his presence? This is where the big change comes. If you're beginning to realize I am united to Christ his spirit is in me and is the source of life. So why would I want to put his spirit into a situation that I know will grieve him and quench him and ultimately outrage him and leave me spiritually depleted and weak if I insist on continuing this way? So you're tasting daily and trying to learn hour by hour to be conscious of the presence of the Lord. I may have shared with you before, one of my friends who was a pastor said, whenever I'm tempted to immorality, I get down on my knees and ask the Lord to give her to me. And in praying that, the absurdity of it is so great that I'm embarrassed into confession and repentance and getting my act back together. Why? Because he's determining to walk, tasting constantly the presence of the one to whom we are united and whose spirit is in us. And then all of this has been in the light of and leading to tasting, embracing God's promises. The promise that I have forgiven you. The promise that I will be with you. The promise that my spirit will take the word and in that will increasingly conform you to my image. The promise that what are the marks of the flesh, Galatians 5, will be changed increasingly into the fruit of the spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. And Paul in that letter says, there's no law against any of this. Live this way by the Spirit. Don't fall into the American evangelical trap of thinking that salvation is an event that simply happened in the past. I told you before, this thing of saying, so tell me, when, when did you become a Christian? And when did you become a Christian? And when did you become a Christian? Is to me as silly as going to a party and walking around and saying, when were you born? Oh, that's interesting. When were you born? What about you? When were you? Well, I want to know, are you alive? Where are you living? What are you doing? Salvation is a new life. Life in Christ. And Peter is telling us that if you would know that life, don't let yourself embrace the brokenness of the past, starting with the matters of the heart. Don't sit around and let yourself be angry or lusting or envying or wanting this, wanting that, because it will destroy you. Instead, desire. Desire the good things of God. And he says, if indeed you've tasted, have you tasted? Do you want to taste? Will you begin tasting today? Father, help me, help us to walk in what you have given if we are yours, then may your spirit empower us to believe and to lay hold of the promises of your word. And may we begin as never before to walk in those promises and to taste and see that you are good. Would you take a moment and simply ask yourself where Today, you may need to respond in a new way to what God's Spirit is saying to you through his word.